Certainly it'd be fair to again say what a delight it is, a blessing that we've all been granted and given this Sunday morning, this first day of the week, to start a new week in the way that we've selected today. There's no better way we could have done it. This is the opportunity that's ours to express our heartfelt adoration to the God who made us and who has heaven in store for those who are His faithful children. Indeed, we're thankful today to be able to come together in this way and for the next few moments. Could I invite you to look at another lesson in our Fundamentals series for this year? We have made the decision each month on the second Sunday to reflect on some of the fundamental aspects of what it's like to live in Christ. All during the year, we have looked at so many already, and we currently are looking at some of the elements of our worship. It would be fair to say, why do we do what we do in the matter of worship? That's an excellent question, and you and I may well be challenged at some time or another by others who perhaps do not understand, maybe others who have a different history or background. And today, probably, the element of our worship that is first and foremost a matter of some point of discussion might well be the music of our worship. This opening slide is an introduction. reminds us of this. The church is a worshiping body. It must be that way because the Lord designed it so. The church is going to worship. And as it does so, that which takes place in the worship is certainly a matter of some interest, and music is no doubt one of the prime elements of that interest. You'll notice on that introductory slide, may I suggest that one of the most distinctive matters of the worship of the church is her music. Therefore, why don't we devote a lesson today to reflecting upon that distinctiveness, giving some consideration to, again, why it is that we do the way that we do it, and hopefully embedding in ourselves a greater heightened appreciation for what that is. A common question you'll notice here at the bottom. Why don't you folks use mechanical instruments? After all, the rank and file element of Christianity today as the world would see it has no problem with one or more mechanical instruments as a part of worship. You may well see guitars, drums, banjos, violins, or otherwise sometimes employed. And quite often there's very little thought given to that. And yet as a person perhaps speaks with you and me, they notice you don't have those things. Could you tell me why? Could you share with me why your feelings are the way that they are? This next slide will be one that challenges us to follow the banner of 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that's within you with meekness and with fear. So may you and I have reasons prepared and ready so that if this conversation were to arise, we'd be ready to share the reasons as to why our worship is as it is. There are some things at the top of that slide. Some conversations may have in it expressions like this, well, you folks just don't believe in music. Oh, on the contrary, we very much do believe in music. That's not, that's not the reason we don't have mechanical instruments. There's others who might say, well, you folks are just against music. Well, we're not against music by any means. That's not the reason we don't have them as a part of our worship, those mechanical instruments, that is. Well, the church of Christ is just a set of oddballs. 
Well, there may be something on otherwise, maybe a different time and place for discussion. But that's not the reason that we don't have mechanical instruments in our worship. You see, the reason goes far deeper than that and is far more profound. Today, why don't we give some appreciation, allowing the Word of God to lead us to some conclusions. And let's talk for the next few minutes about the basis of these things. You see, the basics comes down to those verses Brother Lester read a moment ago. Could I, in fact, read them again? And in light of our point of discussion today, why don't we give some careful deliberation to these? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. The first thing we'll notice, there's an insistence upon the Word of Christ dwelling within us. The appreciation of it being our standard it being that which guides us, it being that which prompts us to do that which we do. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you. How? Richly. We aren't looking for some trivial kind of argument. We're honestly asking, what does this say? And what does it set before us? Let's read on. Teaching and admonishing one another. Nobody would argue about that. The Christian religion is a taught religion. We don't gain it by osmosis. You can't put a Bible under your pillow and sleep on it and think that somehow the power of that truth will seep into your head. It doesn't work that way. It comes by teaching. And it comes by being admonished in light of that which it contains. Let's read on. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You'll notice then that even in our music of worship, we are teaching each other. May we never lose sight of that. The singing aspect of worship, the music aspect of worship, is not just a time to take up a little bit of the time of the hour. It is a time in which we're teaching. Every bit as much as currently is taking place in the sermon. That aspect of teaching, notice, includes admonishing. You may know, what does it mean to admonish each other? It means to lift up, to upbuild, and even to correct when necessary. Admonish, you see, has quite a bit within it. Did you notice in our psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we're teaching one another, we're admonishing one another, and then the verse closes like this. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Do we believe in music? Absolutely. But it needs to be the kind of music that the Lord has authorized, that which He has said that He wants, we dare not offer to Him that which He has not requested. And we dare not offer to Him that which He has ordained as being approved. What happened when Cain tried it? We all remember Genesis chapter 4 that Cain and Abel made their offerings unto God. God was quite happy with Abel's. He was rather displeased with Cain's. What was the difference? They both offered you and I noticed the Hebrew writer would say it like this in Hebrews 11, Abel offered by faith. Romans 10, 17 will again remind us, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Abel offered in consistency to what God said he wanted. Cain didn't. God wasn't happy with what Cain offered. May I say that the pattern connected to that idea, and though that was in the fourth chapter of the all of God's wonderful book, it has continued through the fullness of it. God has never been pleased nor happy with those, again, who offered Him that which He has not requested. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide. 
the church of Christ, or yea, those that are faithful, will not employ mechanical instruments of music and worship because the New Testament doesn't authorize it. The New Testament doesn't ordain that as being an approved thing. It would be no different than turning cartwheels down the center aisle and claiming we're worshiping God. He hasn't authorized that, nor has He authorized pianos, harps, organs, banjos, or anything else as a part of worship. Maybe it is in that connection. We appreciate that it's not that the Church of Christ doesn't like music. I would think many of us probably enjoy listening to the radio in our house, or maybe even you are skilled enough to play a guitar, and in your home you enjoy that. But you're not worshiping there. We're worshiping here. Maybe it is in that light, this next slide, we'll continue those opening comments by launching into the next verse. Did you notice what it said? We have cast a spotlight so far, albeit briefly on verse 16, but now the next one says, And whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. All that you do, be it in word or be it in action, must be done by the name of the Lord and therefore by His authority and in consistency to His approval. Therefore, that's why we do not employ them. There is no record at all in the New Testament of any first century congregation employing a mechanical instrument of music in their worship. There's no example of it. There's no command to do it. And we have no reason, therefore, to think that that's what God would request or what He would find satisfactory. You'll notice in that light that this next slide then, or at least the last part of that slide, challenges us that there are several different passages that state the premise connected to that idea. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6, you and I will recall there that Paul would directly say to the church at Corinth, do not go beyond what's written. What's written serves as a boundary. In essence, a fence, and you must remain inside it. You can't go outside it. If you do, you do not have the doctrine of Christ. 2 John verse 9 and in so doing, you do not have God either. That's why we don't have these mechanical instruments in our worship. It's because the Lord didn't say He wants them. He nowhere gave the approval for them. You and I might now note several more thoughts that may follow from it. It would be an interesting exercise to look at every single New Testament verse that makes mention of music and worship and simply ask, what does it say? What kind of music does it describe? What should be characteristic of it? I would say we could do that for there's only eight. I mean, it really wouldn't take that long, so I've picked a subset of the eight. And why don't we just look at them one by one and simply ask, what is it that these describe? In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, the sister passage to the one that you and I just noted. We have in that place a description that's presented to us in this way. Now while you're turning there, may I share with you just a moment about the introductory features. The book of Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus. That congregation we first encountered back in Acts 19. At that time, we learned much about them, but we found that they were in a location that was particularly susceptible to falsehood. 
later on in Revelation 2, they were highly commended because they had identified some who claimed to be apostles but were not. You have to compliment them for that. They checked some things out. But you'll notice here what Paul told them. Having to do with the thing before us today in discussion, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Note, first of all, we're singing to each other. We're encouraging every one of us here, and therefore might we take note, it's a sin if we don't sing. That's as much a commandment as any other part of the New Testament. If I simply sit on a pew while the singing's taking place and I don't sing, I'm guilty of sin. If I can sing, I'd better be singing. Notice he said, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, three designations of the kinds of things we can sing. Isn't it wonderful? And then it closes by saying this, singing and making melody. We do thrill at the thought of singing because in it we express the heartfelt appreciation that's ours for that which God has done, is doing, and will do on our behalf. May we never allow the song simply to be a memorized or at least a matter that passes us. We don't think about the words. Didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, I'll sing with the Spirit and I'll sing with the understanding. Those songs that Cale just led us in already today, haven't they been lovely? Songs that have challenged us to appreciate the nature of Sing to Me of Heaven. That's the one we just sang right before the sermon. You know, in Revelation 15, that's one of the things described among the characteristics of events in that sweet land beyond this one. We're going to be singing. May I say that it would do us well to reflect upon the sweetness of that activity here. Not only that, it says, making melody in your heart. The heart has to be engaged in our singing. As we sing, knowing and appreciating those words, and we magnify God's cause with them, did you notice the instrument that we are playing is our heart? Not a drum, not a harp, not an organ, the heart is the instrument that's being played. That idea is so very rich indeed. The loveliness, in fact, of that idea has been characteristic of that which we've appreciated today. I've asked you to notice that no mechanical instrument, you see, can carry out that which that verse has just said. May I ask, can a mechanical instrument, in the words of verse number 19, sing? Of course not. Can a mechanical instrument, in the words of verse number 19, speak to one another? Well, of course not. In 1 Corinthians 14, 7, a mechanical instrument is a lifeless thing. Now, with that said, look at the next one. Colossians 3, 16 is the passage before us today. We noted it and read it a moment ago, and in it, we've already highlighted some of the features characteristic of it. The medium was identified. Those participating were identified. May I at least invite you to note this. The music to which God has turned our attention in Colossians 3.16 involves teaching and admonishing, and that's two things a mechanical instrument can never do. Therefore, doesn't that eliminate them as possibilities? 
there's the reason why you and I then will not employ them because, again, the idea is not consistent with that which the New Testament teaches. The third verse is this one, Romans 15, 9. As you turn to that one with me, that one may be a bit more unfamiliar, but how strong and how direct is the statement that's therein made. Paul would say to that Roman congregation in these words, "...and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, as it is written, For this cause will I confess to thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name." In the midst of that discussion, highlighting the unity of the church and the blessedness of its activities, Paul quoted from the Old Testament. You and I might take note, there are over 23,000 verses in the Old Testament. And many of the Psalms will in fact make some reference to a musical instrument that's mechanical. Paul quoted one that mentioned only singing. And he attached it to the way in which we will direct attention and teach the Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? In some ways, even the stronger ones are yet to come. Look at the fourth one with me, would you please? In Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 12, and we'll look later at chapter 13, but for now, would you note with me the second chapter of that beloved letter? For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. I'm sorry, that's chapter number 8. Chapter number 2 is what we need. Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Did you note there are two things referenced? And he says, in the midst of the congregation, in the midst of the church. The Hebrew letter was written to individuals who, though they had been brought up knowing the old law of Moses and in quite many ways had been faithful to it. They had learned about the Christ and they had become faithful Christians, but due to temptations and other persecutions, they were beginning to leave in their faithfulness to the Lord. Again, the Hebrew writer quotes from the majesty of the Old Testament and he says, "...in the midst of the church I'll sing praise." He did not say, I'll play. He did not say, I will in some way orchestrate on an instrument. He said, I'll sing praise. Isn't that interesting and quite lovely? Later on in chapter number 13, the last chapter of this book, could I draw your attention to verse 15 only of that chapter? In some of the closing remarks, the Hebrew writer would say this, by Him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. And isn't it interesting that he did emphasize the fruit of the lips. It's what was involved in the continual offering of praise and thanksgiving unto God. You and I have continued then in an effort to be faithful to that statement. And as you and I have sung these songs today, it's been our goal, our effort, our desire to praise God in a consistency with these passages we've just noted. Now I would say, surely you and I can err on some other ways, but we will not incorporate a mechanical instrument. We could err by trying to put in other things besides instruments. There are those who try to yodel or whistle. You can't do that either because you can't teach anybody if you're whistling. By the same token, 
we might be tempted to leave out some things. Oh, we know we must sing and no more. But what if my heart isn't in it? What if I just sing out of habit? I've sung this song for the last 65 years. I know the words by heart, and so I can just sing it and never even think about what I'm saying. Well, I'm just about as wrong that way as the other. We have to sing with the Spirit. Is our mind in it? Are we engaged in the presentation of these thoughts in song in praise to God? Isn't it amazing that that's one of the issues that challenged the ancient people of Israel? They were going through the motions of offering their sacrifices of bullocks. They would come and offer them, but they kind of couldn't wait till it was over so they'd get on something else. God said that won't work. Isaiah 1 verses 13 and following. God said that won't work. Malachi chapter 1 verses 6 and following. Why should we think it'll work today? I show up at church services to take care of an hour of business on Sunday morning. I'll get through these seven songs that we've got to sing as a part of worship and get on to lunch and I'll be far the better. If that's my attitude, I need some heart checking. Worship's got to be more to, to me than that or I'll never be pleasing to God. Every part of our worship has to require mental engagement. Even when it comes to our giving, we purpose in our heart, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. As we take the Lord's Supper, He says, If you do that without discerning the body and blood of the Lord, you eat and drink damnation to your soul. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 and following. When it comes to engaging in prayer, He says, I'll pray with the Spirit and I'll pray with the understanding, 1 Corinthians 14, 15. Same verse mentioned singing, by the way. Every act of worship requires our attention, our participation, our mental engagement. No wonder in that light we come to that verse I've already mentioned today, but why not reflect upon the words that are used in 1 Corinthians 14, verse number 15. That section of the Word of God deals, as you might recall, with some of the issues the church in Corinth was facing as they were struggling with the spiritual gifts, those miraculous spiritual gifts. You might recall they wanted the ability to speak in tongues. Paul said, that's not the best gift, quite frankly. I'd much rather prophesy if you give him a choice. But in the midst of all that discussion, he scattered some reflections upon the sweetness of what it was like to serve the Lord. And this verse is one of them. What is it then, he wrote, I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. You can imagine the scenario. They were wanting to be able to speak in tongues, to stand up and to speak in this language or tongue. And even though no one there might be able to understand or make use of what was being said, Paul said, that's not good. The whole purpose is edification, 1 Corinthians 14, 26. The whole purpose is to bring the power of the Word of God and His faithful service to others. If you're talking in a language nobody understands, who's benefited by this? He says, if that's the case, be quiet. Don't use that gift even though you have it. In that connection, he says, let's all sing with the Spirit. Let's sing with the understanding. Let's pray with the Spirit. Let's pray with the understanding. The idea is, 
when the gentleman closes the prayer, we all ought to be able to at least appreciate an amen, that we have followed the prayer, we've understood what was said, and it was our prayer too. That's the goal and that's the idea. You see, the singing also is a part of that which is truly for our betterment. We are better people because we teach one another in song. We admonish each other in song. We not only magnify God, we help each other. As you and I close that particular slide, it brings us to several very brief lessons that we might note. And these lessons are just rather quick observations that we might make following these passages that we've considered together. First of all, the music of worship is unaccompanied singing. By unaccompanied, I mean no mechanical instrument employed. Secondly, the only instrument that is played is the heart, based on the reading of Ephesians 5.19. Thirdly, each Christian must sing in this appropriate way those songs and hymns and spiritual songs we've noted. In the same way that each person is to take the Lord's Supper, each person is to sing. That's a part of worship. In the fourth place, each Christian thus blesses and teaches one another as a part of this singing exercise. Now, you and I might pause to notice that there was an interesting distinction to the Old Testament. The Old Testament, you might recall, they did, the Psalms at least, make reference many times to various mechanical instruments like the harp or various other ones that are noted. But when the Lord began His church, a conspicuously missing thing was the usage of a mechanical instrument. And so today, in faithfulness to that which He put in place, we too continue to be faithful to that description. As we close that slide and finish the lesson today briefly, with some of those objections that we started the lesson with, is you have discussions with individuals and they raise issues about the whole idea of music and worship and they wish to defend the appreciation of a mechanical instrument. They may well mention one or more of these things to you. First of all, they may say, well, let's face it, the Old Testament used them as we've already noted today. But you and I know we do not serve beneath the Old Testament. That law was nailed to the cross, Colossians 2.14. It has been taken out of the way. And Paul would say in Romans 7, we are dead to that law. There's not a person on earth today that can serve beneath the Old Testament. That law is gone. So what about the second observation? Some might say, well, don't the angels play harps in heaven? Surely, if that's true, God would have no problem with us using mechanical instrument worship. The only verse that mentions anything like that is Revelation 14. May I suggest to you that's a rather highly symbolic book because the book says it is, Revelation 1 verse 1. Don't you find it interesting that a spirit being, namely an angel, in a spiritual place, namely heaven, plays a literal harp? I have an idea that harp's probably not literal. I would think it's a terribly weak argument to think you could use that text in Revelation to authorize what takes place literally on earth today in, in the Lord's church. In the third place, some might say, but God has blessed me with a talent for music. Surely God would want me to use my talent. 
God's blessed a lot of men to be a great mechanic. Should I haul an old car in here and fix the car as a part of my worship? A lot of men are fantastic electricians. Should I do some wiring as a part of worship? A lot of women are fantastic chefs and cooks and a lot of other talents too. Do I make that a part of worship? To ask is to answer. It's absurd. We do in worship what God says He wants, regardless what my talent may be. In the fourth place, the Bible doesn't say I can't play one in worship. The Bible didn't tell Noah not to use sycamore wood either to build the ark. But God did say to use gopher wood, and that eliminated everything else. By the same token, when God says what music He wants, every other kind, no matter what it is, is not authorized. In the fifth place, some might be quick to say, but let's face it, I'm still singing, it's just I'm singing along with the instrument. Really? There's a difference between an addition and an aid. A gentleman might use a tuning fork to get the pitch right to start the song, but then the, pi the, the, the pitch pipe or the tuning fork's put up. There's a great difference between what's played fully alongside the singing and in fact is a strong guide to it and that which is simply what one might call an aid to the accomplishment of it. I hope you and I would not fall prey to any statements along those lines. But with all of that, let's close our lesson. We have looked today at another fundamental aspect of our worship, and it is our singing. And what a joyous exercise and what a joyous participation it is to join ourselves together in singing praise to God. As we do that, it truly is an element of the heart. And today we've highlighted its importance. We've reflected on five of the New Testament verses that refer to it, and we have drawn those conclusions we noted earlier. Unaccompanied a cappella singing. That's what the church did then. That's what the church shall do now. And in faith, we will be true to that statement. Those objections that we just noted are not strong and powerful truths reflective on, on the nature of the Word of God. And so today, I hope that we shall sing with the Spirit and understanding it could be that someone in this assembly is such that currently your heart isn't right with God. Maybe you have never become a Christian. You know the Lord died on the cross for you. You know that He shed His blood for you. You know that He would love to prepare a mansion for you in heaven. But He lets you make that final decision. Do you want to be a Christian? Then to do that, we simply need to follow what He has taught us. Believe in Him as a Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His name as the Son of God and be buried in baptism for the remission of your sins. We would be delighted to help you in that way today. If you have known the way of Christ, you've lived in connection to that faithfulness, but at this point in life you have veered from that straight and narrow pathway that leads to heaven, then you need to come back to your first love. Those aren't my words. Those are the Lord's words in Revelation 2.5. Come back to your first love. The congregation here will surround you with encouragement and love as you are welcomed back to the faithful side of the Master. In order to do that, you need to confess those errors. Repent of them. That is to say, change your mind toward them with intent to do them no more. And today, if we could be of some assistance and help in these ways, we'd be 
in a position to be delighted to do it. Brother Cale has chosen this psalm of encouragement. Now's an opportune time. Won't you come if you need to while we stand and sing? <laughs>